thank you everyone very very much for joining us and um, we're joined here we're very lucky to be joined here by Shahad, Adam and John from Open Bricks they've I think they told me once how many years respectively they had in the property industry and it was so it was a lot more years than I've been alive so <laughs> lots of experience in real estate John was heading up lettings at, at Countrywide I believe Adam has, has also had years and years and years of experience in in property uh, rentals and estate agency Shahad is the founder of Open Bricks and they're now running what could be a right move challenger and, and bringing blockchain to to tenancy so it's a really exciting project I know lots of estate agents are, are onboarding and it's a really cool exciting use case of blockchain as well so thank you very much for joining these guys will tell you everything just if we we like to make these live chats as interactive and fun as possible so if you've got any comments please do put them in the chat any questions, do put them in the Q&A. If you want to sort of actively ask something yourself, raise your hand and we'll get to you, but we'll make sure all of your questions are answered. So please do put any questions or any comments in there and we'll get through to you. So Adam, John, Shahad, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Erica. Thanks for inviting us back, Jules. I think we're, we're talking about tenancies and uh, the interaction of tenancies at the moment and how that's working with the government. It's it's quite a hot hot topic apart from Brexit or COVID or food parcels or Donald Trump. So it's probably a break from all that. But I noticed yesterday that Kelly Tolhurst, who's uh, one of the ministers at HCLG, referred again to the fact that the Renters Reform Act is going to be hot on the agenda and going to be pushed through this year. So it is quite relevant and it's something the government are really keen to, to push through. I think it's the right thing. I have to say, when Shahad or Erica, you spoke to me about this, I thought it was a wine bar, not a webinar I was going to be doing, so I was very keen to join. Um, I I take the hint and I will buy you wine next time I see you in person. But but it's like a desert this end. I have to tell you, there's nothing to drink at all, but I will have a drink afterwards. However, however, uh, we've got a mixed audience, I guess. And I guess we've got some property experts and some blockchain and technical experts and some maybe of both. But the aim, the, talk, the aim of the talk is to give an overview of things that are going on at the moment. And hopefully that you won't, not all of you will know all of it. So hopefully there's something in it. I'm joined by colleagues Shahad Chowdhury and Adam Piggott and myself, John Hard. So before, but just as a bit of a background, really, I've, I've written some notes and I've written quite a lot. And I, I did rehearse this earlier on and, and crikey, it took me about two hours. So I'm going to try, uh, try to limit what I was talking about because it's easy to get carried away at these things. But the government have got a real focus and plans for the tenant population, the private rented sector. And it's about improving life and the respect to tenants in the private rented sector, bringing a balance and fairness to what's going on. And you know, there are currently four, over 4 million people in this sector now. It's here to stay. It's been around a long time. And it, we're looking at it growing by about half a million over the next year or so. It'll form 22% of the housing market, which is a fairly substantial chunk of the housing market now. The focus has got to be and has been on it's the renting process, its costs, its experience, the tenants have its safety its condition its standards it's the environment they live within its security both security of tenure and the security within the 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 properties they live it's about complaints and how they're handled and who deals with them and a proper recourse 
It's about training the industry and providing a service as well. So you can see that there's all of these factors are going on, whether they're government driven, and many of them are now, or whether they're driven by the industry, but they're all quite relevant and absolutely needed. The other aspect that you can see growing is the build to rent sector, which is is growing continuously. It's about 30,000 units today. I see online, you know, when I look at this, there's about 110,000 units in the pipeline to be built. And you've got people like Get Living and Granger and Fizzy Living, all sorts of people doing this. But when you put that in perspective with the number of properties, 4.7 million, and we're looking at 150,000 units in this sector, it's a long way short of what needs to be happening for the future. And the government, I know, they like to see, they, they want to see, uh, professional landlords in the frame and they're really closing down a bit on private the private landlords so they're, they're looking to expand this professional sector but the contrast is is huge between the numbers and it will take you know 10 20 years to fulfill this wish when you look at the demographic you know, when I first started in this business, well, not when I first started, but when the, when, when the buy-to-let launched, many of the tenants were sort of 18 to 25, then it moved to 25 to 34. And now the majority of tenants are in the 34, 35 to 50-year-old range, which is quite a substantial number of people in that sector. And it just shows those people that started young renting are still renting now partly because they can't afford, partly because they love the transience and the fact that it allows them to move around or go to a bigger property, a smaller property, or move location, move with their job. So it's, it's But what they require is a, is a much better quality of life and, uh, and expectations are much higher now. So that's, where, that's sort of an overview and a background to where we are. When I was writing this uh, or thinking about it and, and sort of putting some notes together, next slide, please, Shahad. It crossed my mind that, you know, today is the 14th of January and it was tomorrow is the anniversary. And anybody that's in property will recognize this date, 15th of January 1989, because it's the date that the 1988 Housing Act was actually enacted and launched. And it was a, 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 mile, a milestone and a massive change in the market and what's going on in the market. Next slide, please, Shahad. So bit prior to that, and I know I touched on this in or, or went into a bit more detail, in fact, in the last uh, talk I did, but prior to that, you had the 65 Rent Act and the 77 Rent Act, which were restrictive to the market, if you like. You had statutory protected tenancies, Every tenant has succession, so families could carry on the tenancy. You could pass it on to your children if they'd been living there for six months prior. The rents were regulated. They were low rents. There was a no account for market rents in this, so they were reviewed every three years. It became every two years, but reviewed only every three years by use of a very strict formula. There was a poor relationship between landlords and tenants, Tenants, there was a stigma around tenants. They were the bottom of the food chain. They were the pond life, if you like, of the time. It was terrible. Low rents meant that landlords did not want to carry out repairs. They, the conditions of properties were really poor. Many properties still had no bathrooms. 
outside loos. And um, at this stage in the early 80s, sorry, in the, yeah, sorry, in the, in the early 80s, I was working in this market and you could see how awful it was. I remember many properties were falling into such disrepair. I used to go and talk to landlords about doing them up. They would never do them up. So we'd, we'd get the tenants to go to the local authority and instigate a repair notice, which was an enforcement notice by the council. And once you got an enforcement notice, you'd get a council grant to carry out the repairs and the works. And so that was the really the process to get improvements, was to force things through the legal process. Some of the houses I did up or arranged to, to improve in the 80s still had gas lighting. And this is in central London. And that puts things in perspective. So this legislation had really put landlords off investing. You had quite substantial arrears problems because tenants wouldn't pay the rent because the repairs were so poor. It also affected values, capital values. And if a a property was rented out, it would be worth about 45% of its vacant possession value. So they put investors off. Why would you invest? The only people that invested, or not the only people, but the main people that invested were people that would buy auctions and then look to get the tenants out so they could realise vacant possession and double their money. So it was really a different sort of world we all lived in at those stages. And then on the 15th of January 1988, the Housing Act 1988 was launched. The buy to rent era began and things started to change. This act brought two main, two key components around. One was market rent, so you could get a proper rent. It wasn't regulated or restricted. And secondly, you could gain vacant possession. You had the ability to get the tenant out using section 21 the thing that's in question today so this led to lenders saying yes you can borrow money albeit at a higher interest rate but you can borrow money to buy people started buying buy to let because it was a good investment pensions weren't doing quite so well this was a long-term view about pension funds for individuals it took some time to attract the pension funds and institutional investors back in we've seen that in the last few years but it did take some time it also meant people could become more transient with living moving around for jobs so you can move from the south to the north and north to the south quite easily for a new job so it opened up the employment market substantially too but what you've got to bear in mind is the the section 21 did give rise to that degree of uncertainty for tenants who use it as their home but then would have a landlord wanting to sell partly this came around through the recessions where people couldn't sell their houses so they let them out people inherited houses that wouldn't sell very easily so they let them out and when the market changed they decided yeah we can sell now so they'd give tenants notice and move them on that sort of carried on because people have entered and exited this market because of their desire for capital growth and then realising that growth. So the Section 21 gave rise to this market, but also causes an issue in this market. So that's really where we are. Along with the 88 Housing Act, you had continued regulation. The genie was out of the lamp. And we saw 
drip feed of regulation coming through. The first of all, the first I remember was fire and furnishing regulations. And I can't remember how the act was branded because it was such a mouthful, but it was doing furnishings that weren't fire resistant. It came along in, I think, about 1988, referring to domestic furnishings. And to put this in perspective, what it meant is you had to have appropriate furnishing in the property. So anything that was old fashioned, you had to get rid of. Anything that was fire resistant, you had to bring in. But to put it in perspective, I had a look at the numbers. And in 1960, there were about 400 deaths caused by furnishings that were not suitable. In the 1970s, that 400 went up to 700 per annum, which is quite a lot. After this legislation came in, by the year 2000, 12 years on, <clears throat> it was claimed that it saved about 1,860 lives. So there's a real relevance to that. And people were starting to look at the, the comfort and, and the environment that tenants lived in and the safety for tenants. Mid-90s, you saw gas safety, which is doesn't need any explanation. It's a very sensible thing. In 2003, well, in fact, in early 2000, the government launched a pilot scheme for a rental deposit protection. It didn't really take off. There was a pilot in the north and one in the south in Brighton, and, and uh, I was working at Countrywide, so I joined it because I thought it was a great thing uh, for people to do and a great thing for the industry, and I thought it would be, be a benefit for both tenants and the business I was running. It failed through to sort of technicalities and not being commercial enough. But uh, at the time, I was a director of ARLA, the Associated Residential Letting Agents, and we sat around the table at ARLA and discussed this and thought that we should launch a voluntary system. So it's called the Tenancy Deposit Scheme for Regulated Agents. We gathered lots of momentum and in 2000, we lobbied the government and in 2007, the tenancy deposit schemes became mandatory. There are now three and all deposits are held or protected via a tenancy deposit scheme, which is a great thing to have. EPCs were brought through. I'm not quite sure why, but I keep the draft off the tenants. And in 2019, you saw the tenant fee ban, which was a really good thing to bring about. It, it means that uh, tenants can only be charged for rent, utilities, a refundable deposit, holding deposit, the deposit they pay against the lapidations, and any changes the tenant wishes to create against a tenancy. One of the main things is sharers, always changing sharers. It causes a lot of administration, and there's an allowance to charge the sharers to change those, or defaults. Uh, you've had the Fitness for Human Habitation Act in 2018. Again, this sort of brought to the fore current bits of legislation that mean the tenant can go to court to enforce repairs upon a landlord. And last year, in June, you saw the mandatory electoral checks come in as well. So the government have been working at this, but it's been quite piecemeal over the years. Next slide, please, Shahad. So your government in intervention on a, on a general basis, but today, in the last couple of years, since we had the, the, the tenant fee ban, it created an environment where the industry got together. And there was a thing called the Fair Fees Forum, where lots of us got together. And then the, the, the Lettings Industry Council, you can see on the screen, the TLIC, the Lettings Industry Council, which was, is a fantastic group of people that brought the industry together 
it includes the ombudsman, it includes trading standards, it includes the deposit schemes, it includes the RICS for Institute of Chartered Surveyors, the Association of Residential Letting Agents, the National Association of Estate Agents, National Residential Landlords Association. So it really brings together all the parties, including the government, involved in the lettings and what happens around lettings. And it's, it's meant to give a balanced view, which it does, because it creates great debate. All the opinions could be put together before decisions are made, or hopefully before decisions are made. And so these people all striving to improve quality of life for the tenant and the landlord and the agent and make it work as a proposition. So you can see I've listed there's a code of practice which is being worked on. There has been a code of practice for some time, but this is being updated and reviewed. And this will affect, it's, it's for tenants, it's for landlords, but it's and the service that, that is provided, but it should also be for the agents that provide this service and how agents and staff are treated too. Trading standards are now a focused part of this group and a focused part of how the regulation operates and, and they may well be heavily involved in the future, in, in future regulation of agents, I believe. AROPA, for those uh, to give an explanation of the ROPA, the ROPA, which is regulation of property agents. And this is about training and skill sets for property agents, which I'll talk about a little more in the future in, in a minute. You've also got build to rent, which is, is the, the new dynamic with lots of investment. And again, I'll speak about that in a minute. On the other side of this, you have bits of legislation or regulation have come in with licensing which, although it's a good thing, and I'm highly supportive of licensing, it's, it's each local authority can put together their own rules. And so you have 340 local authorities in the UK, and lots of these licensing rules have, dif uh, have different rules. Lots of licenses have different rules, which makes it extremely complicated to abide by them. And for landlords, can be very, very difficult. Huge fines on this, up to £30,000 for getting it wrong. So you've got right to rent, which is, is another factor the landlord and the agent has to deal with. There have been changes to the taxes that landlords pay. Stamp duty is higher on buying. Mortgage relief has been removed. The removal of 10% wear and tear has come through. So there are some negatives to landlords. And what we've got to be careful of, we don't drive private landlords away from the market because we need them, the industry needs them, the tenants need them today. The last thing I've got here is the Renters Reform Bill, which is coming in, which will be coming in soon. And that's been talked about, as I said earlier on. Next slide, please, Shahad. So right to rent. This is this to determine an immigration status of all prospective adult tenants. And it's a liability put on the agent or the landlord to check the ID of anybody before they let to them. It's really about agents and landlords policing immigration and helping that. Everybody's got over it now, but it, is, it was a big thing to bring in. It meant lots of changes in the process that people found difficult. There is an up, up to a five-year jail sentence for getting this wrong, so it's not to be sniffed at. Next slide, please, Shahad. So, Ropa, I was 
talking about the regulation of property agents, anyone can trade as a property agent. And that has, when we had in the, the recessions, we saw house sales diminish. And many agents, if not all agents, jumped on the bandwagon wagon of providing let, a letting service. But not all of them had the experience or knowledge or ability to do it properly. And for me now, and, and that still exists today, and for me now, it's important, imperative, really, that we have some sort of learning and qualification for the industry to make sure everybody's properly educated in this, but they give a proper service and proper advice to anybody, whether it be a landlord or a tenant, when they're letting their property out. We've seen high staff turnover in this industry. And so even if you train people on the first day, you're looking at training them again. So the industry struggles with giving proper training out all the time. It's a, it's a hard thing to do. It's quite logistically pro problematic. And so it doesn't always get done is the point I'm trying to drive through. But in future, when this is passed through, and we expect it to be sort of by 2023, this will go through the government and be passed. It will mean that everybody will have to be qualified to at least level three, which is a high standard. And those in charge of businesses, the senior management will have to be qualified to level four. There's an expense to this, which is not insignificant. We looked at the average, it was about £1,000 per candidate. There are approximately 20,000 letting uh, estate agency letting branches in the UK and up to you know, 60 to 100,000 people. And with staff turnover, this is a continuous thing. So this I see as a really positive move for the industry. I can't wait for this to be approved and become part of our regulation and legislation because it will change what goes on for everybody's sake. Next slide, please, Shahad. So the build to rent, I talked about build to rent. It's about professional landlords. They're looking at providing a much uh, better environment for tenants. The government have made it a distinct asset class. It's defined in the national planning policy framework. It's about quality and lifestyle for tenants. Uh, it's uh, buildings are built to a higher stand, a high standard. They're purpose built. They have great technology. Some of them have gyms. They have bars. They have community rooms. They allow pets. They have concierge. Many of these people now provide apps for their tenants to interact and communicate with them twenty four seven. They can deal with repairs and fault finding on site. The staff in these buildings uh, that run these buildings, the management staff, are fully trained, both in the regulation, the legislation, the practices and process of this business, as well as the buildings themselves. So they understand the buildings, the heating systems and the technology. So when they check the tenant in, they can talk them through it properly and make sure they understand how to work everything. They're well funded. And what you see in these things is a, a proper trust between the tenants and the landlords. They're flexible. They offer flexible tenancies. They have no penalties on break clauses. And often the, these uh, landlords don't, do not ask for a deposit. So it makes it much easier for a tenant to move in. The, the funny thing is that if you put less restrictions on a tenant, they tend to look after the buildings 
in a better way. And so these people tend to have less problems than the landlords that are more difficult for tenants. So it's something for the future. Anyway, Shahad, next slide. Thank you very much. The Renters Reform Bill, which is hot on the agenda, and I've told you that this is uh, current again. It was yesterday it was discussed in, in the House of Parliament. It was talked about. So, And it's the government commitment to enhance tenancies, tenant security. It removes, it's proposing to remove Section 21, which is the, the tool that can be used to gain possession of a property. And that's quite contentious. A recent survey of buy-to-let landlords showed that 33% of them would leave the buy-to-let and sell their properties if this became the rule. But what it needs is to have careful consideration around Section 21. It should be qualified. It should give steps for eviction, is my view. And it should, you know, if a tenant's been there for, say, two years, you might want to give them two months notice. If they've been there for three to five years, you might want to give them three months or four months notice. If they've been there for five years plus, you might want to give them six months notice. It might be on those sort of grounds that you give more security to the tenants with longer notice periods. There are lots of arguments around this and lots of discussion around this, but it is, a, you know, something that people should be very careful about or the government should be very careful about imposing it as a black and white, it's gone, as it could do more harm than good. We've seen, you know, from the earlier slide with the 77, we drove people, landlords away from the housing market and created more corruption in it. And this has a potential to do that. The reform bill will look at unfit housing, it will look at listing rogue landlords, which is a great thing to do. And it's also going to look at the tenancy deposit and they've formed the protection working group around the deposit, which is, is got to be the biggest uh, hurdle at the moment for tenants when they look to move. They're talking about a lifetime deposit <clears throat> uh, where perhaps tenants would make up the difference between the deposit and the damages where they leave a property and the, the new deposit they need to put down. Next slide, please, Shahad. So, you know, the government vision, and I think the vision for the from the industry is that all of these changes are there to enhance the tenant's position, but it's got to be a, in a balanced way, and it's got to encourage investment in the private rented sector and not deter it. And it's got to be improving the knowledge in the sector to give proper service and advice to all those that move. But my caveat is beware the Section 21. So <clears throat> deposits, treatment of a tenant's deposit is being looked at carefully. They've asked for, the government have asked for people to look at this uh, in an innovative way. Deposits in England and the UK, Wales, averages. In London, it's over 2,000. In the southeast, it's about 1,850 pounds. So it's not an insignificant amount to, for a tenant to put down. And the issue comes when they come to move. They've already laid this out. Then they've got to move and they've got to pay another deposit whilst the existing deposit is still held by the, the current agent. So it's quite a financial thing. And people are worried about the, the problems this causes a tenant. I looked at the average arrears. And this week, there's a stat that tells me the average arrears for a tenant is about 700. 
£130. So <clears throat> landlords will be thinking, many landlords will be thinking, well, I've got arrears on my property, so how can I have a transient deposit or a deposit that's not there? Anyway, this this so that's just to paint a picture. This this requires some targeted financial assistance. Can I just jump in there and ask about that? Is that because of the, the corona? There was a change in the law that tenants couldn't be kicked out because of the, the lockdown. Is 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 that a real yeah. figure because of that, or is that a standard average across the UK anyhow? A very good question, Erica. No, I, I'm today it's because of corona. So it will have grown. Mm -hmm. uh, because of corona so definitely but in fairness that's not going to go away because you might have more unemployment as we go forward of course um, so <clears throat> i think it's worth make, you know I, I put it in deliberately because it's there and it's there as a, it will be focusing landlords minds and attention but yes it has grown because of corona but i see that probably growing a further because of corona of course do you have any statistics on what percentage of tenants are in I don't. I don't. There's not. I can't see anything that's published on that. But it, 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 I think of the market, you'd have probably thought three percent of the market carried an arrears. It used to be a figure I was. I would always, when I was in business, look to keep arrears below three percent, mm -hmm. and the arrears in the uh, countrywide were well below two percent. And I think managing arrears and talking to people, communication is the key word, mm. really. Because not, no one wants to be in arrears. They hardly ever do these days. It's just an unfortunate fact of life. So communication tends to resolve the arrears problem. However, there is an arrears problem. And I think with unemployment, that might be, it, it might, mm. if people get into arrears, how are they going to get out? And then when you couple that with a deposit, it will mean there's a risk that they can't move very easily in the future. And that's why the deposit has to be focused on really. So deposit transfers, as we said, you've got over 4 million people in the sector there, and the government recognised the struggle with it to find a second deposit. It can create debt. It, it usually does because people borrow on a credit card, then they start paying the rent. At least they don't have tenant fees to contend with now. And there's a risk of people being trapped in their existing properties and they can't move, which is a frustration. So the ministers invited proposals to, to look at this, to reduce costs and make the process easier. One of the things I haven't seen mentioned, although it's probably been discussed, is the inventory and dilapidated delay. And this is a practical thing more than, a, more than anything else. And for a tenant, they have to put a deposit down on the next property or, or pay it before they move in. And the deposit on the existing property isn't even considered about release until they move out and so the process on inventory checks the communication with landlord and the agreement <clears throat> is always going to be a delaying factor <clears throat> this when there's a dispute it can delay at 90 100 days or even more but even over a period of weeks there's a there's a definite delay and that's why they need to think carefully about how the proposal is made for the future so next slide you had so a lifetime deposit is being discussed. And if you have a lifetime deposit, there's there's been a few suggestions. So I've looked again online at what's been going on. There's a couple, there's quite a few suggestions here. A shopping list, if you like, and just to run through them, a government help 
to rent deposit loan. Now, I'm not sure they're going to be keen on doing that. They never seem to be keen. They may do because of Corona, but they've never been keen in the past to help financially support these sort of things. Short-term deposit replacement, well, that exists already and is, is okay, but I'm not sure it's the answer to this question. It, it means tenants paying a premium for something that's a one-off payment. They don't ever get it back. You've got reduced deposits to three weeks. I'm not sure landlords will really buy into that one. I don't think it gives them enough comfort in this situation. Report deposits to be paid by instalments. I'm not sure about that either because you you know if 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 you've got a bad tenant, they're not going to pay it ever. They may some tenants in the minority, the extreme minority, move in and never pay rent. So it's not something that landlords would want to see. Paying over a delayed period, maybe, but maybe doesn't doesn't work for me. It's not really the answer to this one. I think building up a deposit fund whilst you're in your tenancy is a sensible thing. If you're paying, let's say, £800 a month rent or £1,000 a month rent, if you add £50 or £100 to that each month and start to build a reserve up, would be a sensible way forward. Not everybody would be able to afford that, but maybe they could pay a smaller amount and build it over time. And the last thing they've got here as a suggestion is a levy to pay for mandatory alternative dispute resolution and again you've got this really with the deposit schemes adr um, i don't see it being the answer it's got to be part of the solution though but it won't be the answer in my view probably how this should work is with a revolving credit if a tenant has an identity and they can track their records and their rent payments, but if they can have a revolving credit facility that they only use for a short while to bridge the gap between moving properties, that's likely to be an easy answer. But that's something else. So I think for me, I've, hopefully I've given an overview to where things are. And now I'm going to pass over to my esteemed colleague, blockchain and process engineer guru. Thanks. Thanks, John. Okay, so... Hopefully everyone can hear me okay. What John's explained in just in that period is, you know, where were we with, I was explaining to Erica earlier, like, you know, getting rid of landlords from the sector. We don't want London to be another Detroit where, you know, the houses are crumbling and no one wants to fix them. No one wants to do anything with them. We've had that. We've had that in areas of uh, London, certain definitely areas of South London where, you know, anyone, any of the only fours and horses generation would tell you <laughs> certain areas, just landlords were just never going to go and uh, fix those properties. The whole reason the act came in is to get landlords to invest in these things. And look, this is going to be worth your while. And it was worth the while. They did invest in these areas. We have brought up the you know, standard of living in a lot of these areas, which are now considered affluent. What we don't want to do is go back. So that, and, and, you know, those things are fine, but and they're fixing it, and we agree with all of those fixings and all of the regulations. But the two key points of areas still to this day that's an issue is A, the deposit, and the other issue is the ID. Theresa May, she brought in something to say, yeah, every state agent needs to be a border control. John, I explained to you that most estate agents are not qualified. They don't have qualifications. Most, anyone off the of the of, you know can just turn up and become a, a state agent. Do you really want those guys to become border control agents too? And that was one of the issues. And the ID aspect is quite big. Now the ID aspect debate has gone on for years. And the last prime minister tried to bring a national ID was Tony Blair, and that died a death. Even within Open Bricks community, we have a tenant ID. But even within the Open Bricks board, shall I say, 
there's a debate on what is if ID is good or bad. And then you've got for and against. And obviously against is all about the privacy enforcement. And there are four that says, well, actually, you know, <laughs> it gives it makes things more efficient and it does provide you security. So there's there's that debate and I don't want to relitigate that, but generally that's that that is the case. Now the important thing about ID is actually ID wasn't ever government issued. It's only during the war that the government started issuing them. Um, also, initially it was the banks. I mean, the first set of IDs was through trading. I mean, the Medici's issued IDs because, you know, you would dump your stuff in, in their banks and then you fly across to another part of the world and, and you take it out there. And IDs were evolved in more for private enterprise than government. But nowadays, if you want to drive, you need a government issue ID. If you want to access medical services, government issue ID. If you want to travel uh, from one country to another government issue IDs and there's obviously other IDs such as the NHS track and trace which if anyone's got great it's the same technology we use to track criminals so if you've downloaded that you're you're in safe hands it's run by Serco and that's all good to some and that's all not good for others but I personally agree with government issue IDs Mm. because I have a stake in that in that so if I if there's a government that's issue an ID, I think it should be the government that issues the ID. It shouldn't be private sector. But here's the question for us is who's issuing your digital identity? If you want to access digital services, whether that's your council tax, whether it's anything, you think anything in the digital world, if you want to access that, what do you use? Use your email address. That is your ID pass. That's your passport into your your anything, your government gateway, your NHS sign, your doctor's registration. Every single thing that you use is usually with a email address. And that email address is your passport. And that, however, is issued either by Google, Microsoft, Facebook, or whoever you use. It's private. The other thing is there's a the recently BT are charging people £7.50 a month to access that email. So Suddenly, your digital identity can be revoked by a private company if they so wish. And that's quite, we I consider quite dangerous. So my view on what an identity should be, and, and don't forget, every tenant, one of the key things is they need to now prove their identity every time they go somewhere. And often what they do is they send an email to the estate agent. We had one of our social media chaps. He viewed seven properties over November and December, and he had to send his email to a passport, a copy of his passport and his bank statements to five different estate agents. They still got it. Even he, though, though he took only one property, they've still got it. So my, my thing on, on what a perfect solution should be is it's about owning your data. You should, someone else shouldn't have a copy of your passport on there once you've, once they're done with it. And as much as GDPR tells you they can't do that and they should delete it, we know not everyone is compliant and it's impossible to be compliant. And I can guarantee you there's hundreds of passports for many different tenants across state agents all over the country. So my view is it should be portable. The document storage should be completely with you. If there's a facial recognition involved, and that aspect of it, it should be a government ver- who verifies it. So those are the kind of the personal side of things that I believe you should have. In the industry side of things, I think it should be, you know, you, you should be able to, you know, agents should be able to qualify tenants. So you, you know, you, you pass over your details and that's it. And you don't have to keep, you can stop it if you want. You should re- reduce the cost in terms of time and effort. 
and I believe the ID should form as part of your rental records. As a mortgage payer, I get a mortgage statement every year. When I was a renter, I never got it. And every time I asked an estate agent for a rental record of my rental payment, they never gave it. And if they did, it was just an email saying, yeah, you've paid us, well done. So that's my view. And this is where we come into why we've chosen, which is part of the whole aspect of Open Bricks and Sense. Why, did, why have we chosen to go down the blockchain route for tenant ID? There are so many tenant passports out there already, but why have we chosen this one? Well, really quickly, most people know what Cryptocurry Club is. It's a group of people who are into crypto, crypt, cryptocurrencies and blockchain. Um, okay. And curry, yes, <laughs> that was that's true. Yes, the first group of curry at the at our family restaurant in Liverpool Street. That was good. so we had that's where kind of we had a lot of uh, good fun down there. But all basically for those who for the property people that have come here, if you imagine what blockchain is, it's just basically a big WhatsApp group with no admin. Which means if I send a message, everyone is kind of it's fully transparent and everyone can see what's going on. And if I send something to Erica right now, you guys all get to see what I've told Erica. And I also, Erica can't delete anything from my WhatsApp list. Like she can delete it from hers, but she can't delete it from mine. And I have a record of it. Um, and also it means if I turn around and say to Erica, meet me at two o'clock. And she goes, no, you said 2.30. Well, everyone else can validate because everyone has a copy of that message on their system. So it's kind of decentralized. And that's the value of what, what blockchain brings. But where it comes in, and so security and all of those sort of things, but where does it come in with open bricks? Well, it's exactly that. I mean, as a ledger, I have a copy of that ledger and no agent can delete it. They can try and delete it. That's fair enough. But I've got a copy of it and everyone else can see that I haven't tampered with it. And that's why. And why are the government interested in it? So we're work, I'm working with the government's working group for the, the, the GPG, which is the good governance practice for ID. And they're very interested in finding different innovative solutions to create an identity that can be kind of used for the entire housing buying and selling process. So we think the ID right now is for tenants. But I think it will go through the entire journey to house buying and selling process as well, because that way you don't have to keep validating your ID over and over again in the process. As one, as Grant Shapps was saying when he was a housing minister, it's actually <laughs> he found out that after divorce, it's the second most stressful thing that you go through in your life, according to a study. So, and it shouldn't be, you know, it should be as easy as buying a car. But anyone who's bought a house, and I'm sure some of you here have probably bought a few, it's it is it is quite stressful constantly validating the other thing is not knowing because you call your estate agent and you say oh what's oh we've sent something well actually if you're all on a big whatsapp group which is what blockchain is you could see all the messages and you don't have to keep calling the estate agent asking what's going on so that's kind of why the blockchain aspects and those are the benefits that blockchain brings to open bricks okay. so what so what now? I'm going to be passing over to Adam, who's our CEO, and he'll explain the, the benefits that blockchain ID and everything brings to the population through OpenBricks. Thanks, Shahad. Uh, thank you very much uh, for explaining blockchain is not just to do with Bitcoin and actually how it can be adopted in the UK property industry. So good afternoon, everyone. I have to say, before I start, I do remember back to one of my first, I think it was my first ever talk at a conference back in it was 2018, where I, well, Shahad had been through the whole explaining the history of blockchain and how it dated back to around 500. I think it was in the App Islands of all places where it started. Anyway, I got to my piece always at the end, and I'm sure I heard someone sniffing. But there was certainly a sea of glazed eyes in front of me. Today. 
But look, it is evolving, and perhaps blockchain is no longer that boring buzzword. Should also say there's no better man I know uh, than John Hards with his amazing pedigree and his practical hands-on knowledge to remind us all of how the UK property letting industry has evolved. Many of you won't know this, but John actually started his career in UK agency as a junior neg for Chesterton's in their very first London branch back in 1805. So he has very, very huge amounts of knowledge. Um, look, the history of... I had to wear shorts as well, Adam. <laughs> the history of, of property lessons in the UK and, and the problems and the perceived solutions at the various times throughout the, the, the journey and further issues and the drive to improve professionalism and ultimately, the letting experience for the consumer has been the focus of today's talk. How will the new tech deliver the solutions? For example, we've discussed a digital IT will almost certainly become a desirable product. And it's perhaps likely that this may even be mandatory. But the big question is, who will own that ID? As Shahad has just alluded to, surely any ID should be owned by the consumer, albeit with the verified data from specific validations but for the consumer to keep. Shahad, can you um, do the next slide? Well, look, this is a global first, actually. OpenBricks has developed a unique and consumer-owned digital ID that provides a government-grade verification of the consumer's identity. It can also process the right-to-rent validation, an automated rental history record. The value of that will be huge. Uh, we've not had that before, but the PRS is evolving rapidly, and a tenant passport will be key. We can also provide a facility for tenants to have their rental payments added directly to their credit histories. They can store documents. I mean, what sort of documents? Passport, driving license, obvious ones. Contract of employment, a mortgage in principle, perhaps a pre-tenancy reference, utility bills, who knows, maybe even their COVID-19 vaccine certificate. All Which with- you need to go into properties now, by the way, when you're doing so. It, it is, it's not outlandish to think that that's going to be on there because already a lot of agents are saying look are you if you've got your covid vaccine or your past negative then you can come and view so it is already happening but all of this all of this with the ability for the consumer to share at a granular level directly to an agent to a partner or a supplier or to anyone without any data hoovering and just to make the point here it's so direct that even we at openbricks can't see that specific data transfer So when people tell me, as they have, in usually a very bored and often smug tone that, look, we don't need another portal, I now always say, yeah, look, I totally agree. You absolutely do not need just another portal. But we're not. OpenBricks is not just another portal. And I believe, as do many, that the age of the listing-only portal are on the turn. And any new challenger would now need not just millions, but billions to knock the top two off their perches. They're deeply entrenched. However, let's not forget one very clear fact. The consumers and the agents are both the kingmakers. Most portals only target the consumers. It's clever, but it's not foolproof. But are they innovating? Are they going to bring in something new, something that customers really need? And are they able to provide them with the required tech solution? Look at Blockbuster. They were huge. They fell out of grace very quickly. Throughout history in all industries, failure to innovate leads to the demise. Adapt or die. I know that sounds harsh, but it's true. And so OpenBricks is more than a portal. We've been crafting this since 2017, and we are innovating, and we are going to be aligning ourselves uh, to the new order. But look, to summarize this screen here, we can provide consumers with this lifetime digital ID, 
a tenant passport, if you like, something of defined and intrinsic value like nothing they've ever had before. And it's not owned by Google, Apple, Facebook or Amazon. It's owned by them, the consumer, with validation. We've got a property management tool. We can increase the process efficiency, the whole letting process for both the consumer and the agent. It's all in one place. The property data is there. The consumer data is already there. The right to rent and the receipt of ID documents has already been done from the offer stage and through the complete letting administration, include references, compliance, certification, payments, the tenancy agreement, and deposit options, perhaps a link to a lifetime deposit, all the way uh, to the renewal or even the offboarding of the tenant. It literally is from instruction all the way to the end. So let's talk about the other revenue streams that agents can earn. Most agents have set up some form of partnership and receive referral fees. But why do the agents do all the work for the supplier when really the supplier should be working for the agents? It's their product after all. And frankly, they're probably better at selling it than the agents are. And certainly I can tell you our suppliers and open books firmly believe that they believe this. Instead, how about letting the agents get on with the job of letting or selling their properties? So we have a partnership scheme where agents can integrate simply on our platform to a wealth of partners and suppliers. Agents can even get their current suppliers to integrate with us if, if they've got that loyalty to increase the process efficiency and ultimately the sales. Partnership deals where the agents can keep the full referral fee. That's quite current. Not just a portion of it or an, or an amount based on their performance. I mean, who are you working for? Who are they working for? And our process can provide, very importantly, the transparency and detail of those referral fees. The key point here is the supplier does the selling all under the eyes of the agent. Therefore, it's easy for the agents to please their suppliers on the dashboard, on the OpenBricks dashboard, and, and see which of them are actually working best for the consumer or best for the agent. It's their choice. I should point out that we're also rolling out a, a new multi-listing service for the UK, albeit this is for the property sales world. But this MLS will bring international and national agents and their buyers to a single platform and will enable them to join a whole UK network or bespoke or local or regional network, all controlled by the primary agents. Such networks can be chosen by geography, by brand or by association, or frankly, for whatever reason. And it is widely accepted the national statistic that around 50% of the first agents instructed actually do not orchestrate the sale and accordingly lose the fee. And these same statistics further state that uh, this percentage success rate actually lifts to around 90% with an MLS. Agents can pitch for the properties to their clients with the tool of saying, for example, you know, I'm, I use the OpenBricks MLS and my reach is not just my office. Uh, it's not just me working for you, but I have a local network of, say, eight agents in a locality and I've agreed a commission split with and, and marketing rights across all the portals. We don't mind. I will be your agent for the duration and I will arrange all the viewings. And if we need to, I can push us out for whole UK MLS where we can share your property with all the UK agents on the platform, as well as over 200 international agents working for overseas buyers looking to buy UK property. And accordingly, madam, sir, my fee for this service is actually higher than my sole agency fee. And do you know, it's actually about time, I think, agents stop this price race to the bottom. And incidentally, for you blockchain people out there, these viewings are actually made on the blockchain. So like with the App Islands back in 500 AD, which was 
just about the time John John Hobbs was born, uh, the viewing arrangements are written in stone, literally, as it were. And this, everyone, is the beauty of blockchain. Much like my car, I have absolutely no idea how it fits all together and works under the bonnet, but I do know how to drive it. And blockchain is, to put it simply, merely a platform to enable a transparent and secure transaction. That's it. One sentence. It takes a non-tech dinosaur uh, like me to put it into one sentence. Sorry, Shahad. But look, I'm going to end up by saying that OpenBricks has a lot more exciting issues and, and uses of the blockchain to come. And as we've alluded to, we know what's coming. We're working with various groups and we'll be fully aligned with these changes. So to you blockchain people, you blockchain nerds, I hope you can see that your dreams and positivity of how blockchain can be used and adopted, it's, it's, it's being used here for great use in the UK property industry. And for you property people, blockchain is not just a buzzword. It's not, its sole use is not just for Bitcoin. And indeed, OpenBricks is not just another portal. So thank you, everyone. John and Shahad, I'm going to yield back to your good selves. And John, I apologize for those nasty, cheap jibes. Well, I'd like to say, um, just just to be on, on, just to sum up on that, that's exactly the case. There are obviously other technologies that we could have done and replicated all of these sort of things. Blockchain wasn't the one that we needed it. The whole concept of why blockchain is, well, for the digital passport, it creates a wallet that the user has. And if the user destroys the key, no one has access to that information. As we found out with some guy with his, his lost 170 million pounds of uh, Bitcoin because he, he forgot his key. The property management tool isn't on the blockchain, though one of the, the, the process is, so you can see every step of the journey. The partnership pairing obviously is in a blockchain because it pairs different people and the multi-listing tool is similar to the partner pairing. It pairs things. So it's, it is a peer-to-peer network and the blockchain, I believe, so I'm not a techie, I'm more of a process efficient process engineer mm-hmm. and I think blockchain is the perfect tool to bring process efficiency to these things where other tech, other technologies like centralized systems wouldn't necessarily be able to provide the same level of efficiency, in my opinion. Any questions and answers, please ask away. No, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I mean, there's a few questions coming um, through there, but I'm just going to jump in with my own first of all, <laughs> because the, the, the vaccine has been on my mo- mind mostly you know, due, due to my sort of fear or, or the state of vaccines in general. But you, you mentioned that estate agents will be asking that people who have been we've, proven corona negative or vaccinated. Have you have you had that? Is, is that legal? What, what no, no. So what, been around that? No, what's happened? There isn't a legislation. So we, recently we've had that in one of the agents in Docklands where they've said that, you know, you can do a virtual viewing. But if you want to do a physical viewing and you want our one of our negs to go there, we, we'd like you to test negative first before you come along because they were lo- they basically they were losing negotiators for like ten days, etc. Purely because they kept on getting it, and the spread in London, the spread was so so high mm-hmm. um, that they had no choice but to do that. Okay, uh, do you think that will will happen more and more going forward? No, I. I no. I I, don't, I think once the vaccine starts getting rolling out, people will just say, look, uh, just upload their vaccine document and say, look, there you go, I've had my vaccine. And if they haven't? Think, oh, well, that's a question, isn't it? I mean, who would take the risk? I'm not sure the vaccine's going to stop you catching it. It's going to stop you becoming very ill from it, but it still means you could be a carrier. So I'm not sure that's going to be the most practical solution Valid point. to it. But I, I, I tend to think, no, I, I think people the more... The more that are vaccinated, the more free will become as a 
society and and we have to wait for that but i don't see it being part of the regulation no and the other question i've had i know we touched on this last time we spoke but about the the build to rent mm-hmm. i mean i've i've lived uh in for chunks in in switzerland and on the continent where that's pretty much the standard and you've got yeah. these incredible blocks with really really nice spacious flats and nice communals and nice communal areas where everything's taken care of you don't have to worry about bills or mm-hmm. internet or anything or signing up mm-hmm. to anything at all it makes you can i had that in spain medieval the, the the way every time you move you have to sign up to everything for new and when when will this come to the uk is is it likely is it possible i mean it it would make it's by well, far the I best mean, way to are, live we are experiencing that growth now and and you know as i said we've got the build to rent regime moving on they're about mm-hmm. thirty thousand units which is a lot of units however it's nothing compared to the size of the the sector right there's 110,000 in the pipeline but it will be the future it is the future for us but it will take yeah. many years to to absorb a chunk of the market and provide that but yes it will be the future where it's 10 20 years before there's sufficient to become for it to become the dominant private rented sector mm-hmm. yeah well, we will get there i mean I it's think- a mentality change isn't it john i mean if you think about how it works in the uk even now we're still i still think the 39 the 35 to 49 but there's still people outside of once they get to their 40s their dream of owning a house whereas if you go to places like germany they they know that they're going to rent the whole life and when they get the pension they're going to carry on renting there's no they, they never think even it doesn't even come into their mind that they're going to buy we still that's why still even after 35 mm-hmm. people are still thinking of buying until that demography as that demography is getting longer in the next 10 years maybe then we get that 35 to 49 gets pushed to the 60 etc and then banks aren't going to give you a mortgage so then you become lifetime renters so it is getting there i think in the next 10 years as john said as that 35 to 49 gets to the 60 50 area that's when you've got a whole lifetime's worth of renters someone who's rented their entire life never thought of buying and the ones coming behind will have the same kind of views but I, I also think that it's not, you know, at the moment, they're very much focused on these sort of lifestyle for the young. And it's yeah. You know, sometimes you- people want to be renting detached houses out in uh, suburbia and, and in the country. So yeah. I think you, know, you can't take your, your eye off the private rental sector. We can't just rely on built to rent. It, it, these changes must look after the PRS and they must look after landlords. I mean, I think it will be generations before we become a society that moves towards renting as the norm Mm -hmm. because people instinctively want to own property. They don't always want to live on developments with flats. They might want to have a house in the country or big gardens. So it's never going to become the absolute ultimate. But what you will find is the more these developments are built, they're small towns in in, in many cases, they will become far more favourable, and, and but there's a huge demand for them. But what it's going to do is raise the game for many landlords because it will create more competition and standards will have to be improved to compete with these people, which is a great thing. But it's a long way off, I think, before it comes to the norm. And do you think uh, coronavirus and, and lockdown and people being more conscious of where they're living, do you think that will change? That, that and make more people want to rent or you still don't think they'll have enough of an impact well, i think it becomes an alternative for people to move away from the city and rent their own property out and rent something new in the country mm-hmm. 
yeah, I, I really think that will be the case. And we've seen the housing market last year really explode with people moving away and moving further away. Working from home has changed the dynamics and technologies, you know, ch- changing the dynamics of everything we do, including you know, the way you rent. But yeah, it, it's going to be the case. In the 90s, we saw people moving away. When renting became much more uh, part of the environment and the market, we saw people moving out of cities into the country a lot back in the 90s. And we, we were watching you know, what was going on because we had a national network across country one. You could just see how that was working. There's been a regeneration of cities and a revitalization of cities to bring people back. But that's going to be put under more pressure now, particularly with office workers. Offices will go from cities. Mm-hmm. I think some of the office buildings will become well they are already becoming residential and they'll be turned into part by part you know renting all sorts of you know so that that will change yeah have you already seen that happen with the, the office blocks in the city in london yeah you're seeing it happening now with with major towns and cities around the uk that office buildings are turning to residential even in, in london as well yeah so <clears throat> not automatically as i think it's going to happen but okay. yeah yeah, cool. Okay, I see that uh, Ron Levy has. Uh, yeah, I was, was going to jump on the questions, but I'll, I'll let you, you you jump in there for for everyone. Ron uh, is asking if if Open Bricks is already launched. Yeah, and and yes, we have. We 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 had various stages of our launch because we had to make certain things were stable because it's the blockchain was new. So we did that in two thousand and twenty. Went through various mm-hmm. stages. And we onboarded a whole load of partners in november and we started to onboard the agents from september so yeah it, it's it's live and kicking and it's working and people are already using it so we've already got agents who've already used the partnership to buy products one of them was so surprised how easy it was that he actually complained to us because he never got a follow-up and i said well you don't need a follow-up because you can see the chain and then like because he never got an email back i said you're not going to get an email back because it's on the chain so you can just see that it was accepted and it's been interacted and there you have it and and they kind of it's just getting used to that sort of thing but yeah we're, we're live people are using it i uh, you know so we'll get regular sign ups a few more questions from from james who's first of all asking if it's open to invest into i'm sure that's your favorite question guys uh, well, no 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 is is more about the effecting of the leasing they're available to invest into is that james is i don't think james is looking to invest james yeah okay well wow. i said yes dm me so that's a clear clear and sharp answer all right all right okay yeah in terms of in terms of investment yeah i'll let i'll let i think in terms of what you mentioned about adoption of the the cryptocurrency world that's quite interesting about the leasing aspect because as i was saying to adam one of the aspects that we're currently talking to a partner with because we're not we don't we don't we're not with the fca we did open up a treasury but we haven't gone down the fca route is there are people saying look i've got a property i can't pay my mortgage and i need to kind of fire sell but if i didn't have to, you know and what they're saying is if you didn't have to fire sale, what you do is you tokenize your entire property. So if your property is worth, mm-hmm. say, a million pounds, you create a million tokens, you sell a hundred thousand of those. So then you sell 10% of your of your property. Essentially, you kept the others. And then when you buy that back, you can re re-register it back into your own name. But what that does is it gives you cash flow during the bad times, and then you don't have to fire sale. And or and the other thing is one company one sort of traditional banks want cash flow blah 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 all of that to make sure that you can pay it but in the crypto world people will take a just buy a small share so there's a company that's 
called Lysium that's doing that, that wants to partner with us. So I think the cryptocurrency world will come into the property sector. We're not keen on that because Adam and John wants to keep everything very simple. <laughs> I proposed it and it was a very much no, not not, not right now. But I, I pers- my personal view, opinion is that liquidity that tokenization brings is very valuable. Adam's keeping it very simple in terms of we're a platform, we sell these services, we connect people, we make money, that's it. But all of the other, shall I say, funky ideas, because I'm the innovation lead, so it's my job to kind of explore those things, is kind of in a, in a back, back shop that we're just exploring. So right now, in answer to your question, I think it, that's what's going to happen. I think money 2.0 is central bank digital coins. And I think people will see purchase on property via currencies via tokenization via fractional ownership and i think that's something that's going to come there is um another uh, company in the curries trust px who are doing something similar to that about tokenizing property and and they're also looking at a model whereby if you're renting for example say i don't know your rent is 900 a month for the sake of a round number yeah. where you can have the option to to pay say a thousand a month and then of which uh, say they, they slowly buy say, right right you can slowly buy buy chunks of bit that property or be at another property and, and i think that's a great rent. idea i think that's a great idea and i think the 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 society will move towards where i think if everyone if you think about what banks is bank 1.0 is your usual barclays bank if mm-hmm. you think monzo and Revolut and starling that's bank 1.5 because all they're doing is just the technology is on top of the old infrastructure mm-hmm. but bank 2.0 is is central bank digital coins the ability to send money to somebody without going through so many different points i think is going to be great and i think the property sector is one of the sectors that's going to really benefit from that cool well no thank you james is saying adam he'll drop you a message and i know various speakers have raised seven figures from speaking on these uh, crypto curry live chats i should I should start charging sending invoices for the people <laughs> um but no um guys it, that's super interesting i think that the tokenization it, it it is a real question for people that either traditionally haven't been able to to get into buying property and of course as deposits get higher and higher and wages get relatively less to, to property prices i think there there is potentially an argument for that or even that you you can buy up more and more of the property that you're living in that potentially on a build to rent model. I don't know if that's something that the government have been looking at, John. I don't think they it, have. It has been with sort of affordable housing, there are schemes like that. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're usually managed by certain people who to charge a lot of money. That's the thing. Not, so if not, you not always, I think it's not not always, Chad. But it's 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 a minority thing that uh, mm-hmm. happens. Majority. Yeah. So. I know I know the shared ownership, like if you buy 25%, but you're liable for all of it and the service charge is crazy. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a crypto evangelist. That's why I joined the crypto the crypto curry club. Um, and I think the peer-to-peer method is much better than some central person saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll give you, sh- I'll sell you drip feed my shares. But every time I do, you're going to charge me a huge fee. I'm not a big fan of that. But I think crypto is the way to go. Thank you so much. I'm conscious of times, but that's been really, really interesting. I think it's still my favorite guests of all time on the live chats but mostly sorry sorry for adam thanks uh, and adam but mostly thanks to john's sort of history and background of the 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 uk property markets i find it fascinating could listen listen all day thank you so much have have a lovely evening thanks for joining see you soon Bye. 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 bye